If you ask me what projects have I enjoyed directing, all of them, and for different reasons. Clearly, the most fun I've ever had is literally like someone says to you here, this is a $450,000 Ferrari. We're going to let you drive this for eight days, bring it back the way you found it. That's what directing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is like. It's a big, muscular, very expensive, incredible standing sets, incredible cast, incredible crew. And even though you're the director, you're like the substitute teacher. They all know each other and you don't know anyone. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. My first guest is producer and director Stan Brooks. I originally reached out to Stan Brooks upon graduating Brandeis University, where he was also an alum. He was incredibly kind and took the time to speak to me on the phone. At the time, I remember not knowing exactly what to ask him. He invited me to audit a film class that he was teaching at Brandeis. I took a bus to Massachusetts and stayed with my sister in the middle of the week just so I could audit his class. I learned so much from him. A few months ago, I reached out again to participate in a virtual alumni event I was organizing for Brandeis and he was kind enough to say yes. I'm incredibly lucky to have him as my first guest for Mentors on the Mic. Stan Brooks has produced more than 60 movies for film and television. At 27, he became the president of Goober Peters Television before going on to create his first independent production company, Once Upon a Time Films. In 2006, he produced the acclaimed miniseries Broken Trail, starring Robert Duvall and Thomas Hayden Church, which won four Emmys, including Outstanding Miniseries. In 2009, he produced the televised docudrama Prayers for Bobby, starring Sigourney Weaver, which earned Emmy and Golden Globe nominations. He also produced the TV miniseries The Lizzie Borden Chronicles in 2015, starring Christina Ricci. His film directorial debut was the cult favorite Perfect Sisters, starring Abigail Breslin and Mira Sorvino. He's been directing ever since, including two episodes of ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the upcoming Girl Who Fell from the Sky. In this episode, Stan talks about graduating Brandeis, then AFI, and his first job in the mailroom at a TV company called Filmways. He talks about his hand in the production of the Academy Award-winning film Rain Man, starring Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. He also shares some incredible stories while working on various television shows and movies, like attending a screening of Submerged, a film he worked on, at the White House in 2001. His transition to directing in 2014 after years of producing, and some incredible projects he has in pre-production. This is an incredibly interesting interview. Welcome, Stan Brooks. Welcome, welcome. Hello, Stan. How are you? I am great, Michelle. Thank you. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Oh, I'm honored to have you, really. It's been, I'm so, so grateful. So let's just get right into it, okay? So this podcast is all about how people started in the industry and how they moved up. So how did you start in this wonderful industry of ours? Well, I went to Brandeis and yeah. came in pre-med, flunked out of chemistry, got a zero actually. So that was over within the first semester of my freshman year. That dream ended in a fiery blast. <laughs> and I had always wanted to be in show business, but I kind of put that dream aside. And so I then switched to American studies because I had read in the course descriptions that American studies showed movies. I saw the, oh, I can see Citizen Kane in this class. And I can see Casablanca in this class. So, and then American Studies really sort of changed my life. I got to be very close with two professors, Stephen Whitfield and Richard Tedlow. And at the same time, I was running student programs. So I went from being 
the assistant film chairman my sophomore year to the film chairman my junior year. And then on my senior year, I ran all of you know everything from theater to film to concerts to lectures to dance and got a really good taste of what it meant to produce. And I decided on a lark because I had no film background at all, but I had producing background to apply to the American Film Institute and see it's the only place I applied and see if I could get into the producing program using the all the experience I had producing and negotiating contracts and all that at Brandeis as head of student programs. And somehow I got in. And so I went straight from Brandeis to AFI in Beverly Hills at the Doheny Mansion and had this literally fantastic year where I made three tapes and and then I made a thesis film with a director. And then that premiered and I thought, okay, someone's going to call me and say, you're a producer. Poof. And that didn't happen. <laughs> and so after about six months of sending my movie out and everybody going, that's very nice, but we don't want to meet with you. I finally took a job in a mailroom. And it's sort of like everybody else, that was the beginning. And I, I worked ever since. I started in the mailroom and then that led to a job as somebody's assistant and that led to a job as somebody else's assistant. And then that led to a job in, as a casting assistant. And then that led job to a job as a reader because I met someone at ABC who said, you need to get out of casting and into development. And so each job sort of led to the next. And eventually, at about age 27, I was named president of the Goober Peters Company. It was a pretty meteoric rise. And <laughs> that was yeah. that was during the time when they were making Batman and, and Rain Color Man, Purple right? and Witches of Eastwick. And well, Rain Man was something I found. Really? Uh, I worked on two... I was president of television. I worked on two feature projects that came in through the TV department. One was Rain Man and the other was Gorillas in the Mist wow. with Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, Rain Man was pitched to me by a friend. He said, I came up with this idea. He had won an Emmy for this film, Bill. And he said, what do you think? And I, I heard it and it was called Rain Man. My grandfather, who was a real important figure in my life, was named Raymond. And Raymond was the lead character in this. And I thought, well, this is kismet wow. and it's meant to be and i said i don't think it's i don't think it's television we should walk it across the hall to peter goober and roger birnbaum and see if it's for the feature side and we did and we it actually got passed on at warner brothers wow. where we had our deal and then it got sold at united artists and we thought we were going to make it as a small movie and then one day and i kind of after that i i would read the scripts but i wasn't that involved because i was now running the television division and one day, Peter Goober walked in and said, hey, your movie Rain Man's getting made. And I said, oh, that's great. Who's going to be in it? And he said, Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. And I Casual. fell out of my chair. Casual. Said, what? What? Wow. And, uh, and then, we went, then we went through four directors over four years. So it, was, it didn't get made while I was there. I had left already. It was originally Marty Brest. And Levinson directed that Yeah, finally, it was right? originally Marty Brest. Wow. The cast didn't change, but the directors did. Uh, we, it was originally Marty Brest. Mm -hmm. And then it was Steven Spielberg. And then it was Sidney Pollack. And then eventually it was, wow. and all of them did drafts with Dustin and, and Tom, mostly with Dustin, because he was the difficult one. And eventually they came back to my friend Barry's script when Barry Levinson came aboard. And, right. uh, and my friend Barry Morrow won the Oscar for that screenplay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How amazing. It was. Wow. Oh, well, so first of all, there, that was a lot. I, I don't know if you know this, but I also did student events at Brandeis. So I was also a similar position. Did you know that? I, I, I did not know that. I did not know that. Yeah. So I did. I did mostly. I mean, I helped out with all the events because I was on the team, but I was the head of concerts. So oh, I bring cool. in all the artists and bring in Spring Fest and stuff. But so what I love about your story is, you know, there's many things. One, from Brandeis, you went to AFI. People went to AFI. It's a fantastic program from what I've heard. But just because you graduate AFI and, and, you know, this prestigious school doesn't mean that poof, like you said, you're it, it you're set, right? So when did you decide to take a, a job as a mailman? How, what was that time period like between graduating at AFI and being like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start now? Well, my parents had still didn't quite understand what I had done, that they sent this kid off to Brandeis University, which had this amazing track record of getting people into business school, medical school, and law school. And I was going to what? Film school? Because I had no family in the business. I didn't know anybody in the business. It was really a total shot in the dark. And and then when you're there, it's such a beautifully fantastic small bubble that you're inside. And they want you to feel like you have a chance because then, of course, you know, all the people that came before you, whether, you know, David Lynch or the, on the producer side as well. And and you went, OK, well, I'm going to be one of those. It's, you know, if, I, I don't care that the success rate might be one in three. 
get a job in the business, I'm going to be one of those. So when you get out, you're kind of like, okay. And uh, I got two meetings, neither one of them produced a job. And in the meantime, I was sort of coming up with ideas and trying to pitch them and selling nothing. You know, time was ticking by. And I think it was my dad went to my sister. He wouldn't ask me directly. My dad went to my sister and said, what do you think your brother's going to do? At what point do you think he'll give this up and go back to school and get a degree in something. So she came and told me that. And I went, oh, okay, yeah. that was enough motivation to, okay, <laughs> this is not, I'm not giving this up. So someone said, I know, I, I heard there might be a job at this TV company, Filmways. And my mom happened to know somebody. And so I went over there, they saw my resume and I thought I was going to go in maybe and get a job as a reader. And uh, the guy looked at me and said, I have one job available. It's in the mailroom. And I, I'm, I'm sure I blanched because he looked at me, he goes, <laughs> are you too good for that? <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'll take it. He said, okay, it starts Monday. And then the story yeah. I told at your- I uh, love this story, yeah. At your panel, I have breakfast with my grandfather every, the same Raymond, that uh, every Friday while he was alive and I was in town. And that Friday we were at the Stage Deli in Century City and he always ordered the same thing every week, raisin toast and black coffee. And he said, between bites of raisin toast, so what are you going to wear? And I said, I, I don't know. I really thought about what I'm going to wear. I'm going to be in a mailroom delivering mail. And he said, well, what do you think you should wear? And I said, I don't know, a nice shirt and a pair of jeans. He said, no, you're going to wear a jacket and tie. And I said, in a mailroom? He said, aren't you delivering mail to all the people that could get you a job someday in your career? And I said, well, yeah, they're producers and actors that have deals at the company. And he said, yes. And aren't they going to see you delivering mail? I go, well, maybe they, maybe their assistants. And he said, wear a jacket and tie. And so I did. And I got in there and there was like four people in the mailroom and the rest of them were wearing like Metallica and Kiss shirts and cut off jeans. And I was the one guy in a, in a jacket and tie. And within less than, I think, a week, I moved on to being an assistant to one of the producers under a deal there. Wow. See, that's yeah, a lot. Rick, Rick Rosner. Yeah. And, and it says not even just that like concept of dress for success, but, but it also sort of applies. It's like dress for the job you want. Which yes. I, I love. And I think it's true. I think, you know, you you coming in and, and dressing as a role that you want or to be taken seriously, that showed. Yeah. And it, it also takes some chutzpah. It does. Because I knew that I knew that the other I wasn't going to be making friends in the mailroom. I wanted to make friends with like the, the producer's assistants more than I wanted to make friends with the people that I was working right. with. So you moved up, right? So you started getting all these positions, like you said. And when you say reader, just because I think in acting terms, it's a little different. I just wanted to clarify. So reader is what you read all the scripts and you read all the, the projects coming in from agents. Yeah, it's the yeah, it's the very lowest level of a development size. So there's two sides to the entertainment, to the movie and television business. One is production, which is sort of that's the people that make it. So from the time someone hands you a check and says, go make a movie, that's the kind of blue collar side. It's grips and electric and hair, makeup, wardrobe, transportation, actors, directors. And then there's the star that has to get you to the person who's going to give you the money. And that's development. That's coming up with the ideas and pitching them and getting them, getting a script finance and then writing a script and giving notes. And a lot of companies have a reader or a reading staff, depending on the size of the company, that would get all of the material coming in from agents like screenplays and treatments. And you would write a like a book report um, called coverage. And so that was my first job. And what happened was the I was sort of blessed because the woman that hired me got fired wow. after I was there for about three months. And they almost they almost closed the company and they decided to leave it open and just leave me until they found a new person to run it. And so for about, I want to say six months, it might have only been three months. I called every agent who would take my call and said we were ready to spend a lot of money. And I got a stack of scripts, probably the worst scripts at every agency whatever they could send to somebody who they'd never heard of at a company they'd never heard of. Uh, but I spent every day until they hired somebody who became my new boss reading scripts. I would read 10, 15 scripts a day. And they were primarily bad scripts. Well, you know what? If you read enough really bad scripts, when someone sends you Rain Man, you go, uh-oh, uh this is magic. This is the magic. And yeah. Um, and, it, and there's that chutzpah you were talking about coming back again. Like they calling all the, <laughs> the agents and being like, yeah, yeah, send them over. Yeah. We will take them. Yeah. We have a lot, we have a, we have a lot of income. Yeah. So we can, we can spend yeah. on you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, okay. So just to focus on this for a second, just cause I'm curious, what do you, when you were writing this coverage for these scripts, like what stood out to you? Like what was something that you saw consistently that was like, oh, this is awful. And what was something that was like, this is great. Well, you know, you hear about a lot of these sort of rules that people have, like inciting incident and, you know, when you how soon you should introduce your lead character and and state what the film is about by the first 20 pages. 
And I kind of self-taught myself to that because if you read enough, you kind of realize, okay, these are the beats. This is how the music should play on a, on a script that works. Like you should kind of know by page 10, oh, this is a thriller or this is a romantic comedy or this is, and we should know who we're rooting for and who we're rooting against pretty early. And so you start to sort of get a, an instinct almost within the first 10 pages. Oh, this is going to be good or this is going to be a disaster. Rarely would that change past page 10 or 15. Mm. Um, and so it, you and, and by the way, the reason I ended up going into film is because let's go way back when I was very young. My parents were extremely young. My father had had a child with my mother when he was in medical school. And so my mom was alone with two young kids during my childhood. My father was doing his internship and residency and then starting a practice we never saw. Wow. And so my mother on weekends wanted to be by herself. She was d done with these two little annoying kids. And so she would try and find things for us to do where she could drop us somewhere and pick us up in two hours or four hours. And she found a rerun theater near our house called the Lido on Pico Boulevard. And it was playing a W.C. Fields double feature. Never give a sucker an even Blake. And you can't cheat an honest man. Very prophetic for the entertainment <laughs> business. And I, and she, I sat in that theater. At, I, I want to say I was 10 or 11 maybe nine. And I, if, a, if, a, if an, someone that age can have an epiphany, I had an epiphany. And I was, I, I thought what I had just watched was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I wasn't particularly athletic. I wasn't, I didn't play sports. Movies became my passion. And unbeknownst to my parents, I would wake up in the middle of the night. I had a little black and white TV, like about the size of a laptop that I hid. And I would take it out and I would go through the TV guide on Sunday and, and highlight W.C. Fields, the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, Humphrey Bogart, Spencer Tracy, and so if they had a movie on at three or four in the morning and in between used car commercials, I would watch those. So that by the time, and then I ran the film committee at Brandeis, and then I ran the film committee again the next year and, and, and created film festivals. I had three film festivals at Brandeis. So by the time I got that job reading scripts, I had a language that I understood. I mean, I had seen of the, say, of AFI top 100 movies, I probably had seen 50 of them by the time I started that job. So I knew from Citizen Kane and Casablanca and uh, best Years of Our Lives and all of those movies, It's a Wonderful Life, I knew the, the the rhythm. I knew what had to happen in movies because I had a story sense from having watched so many of the classics. And so the, my black and white movie literacy was pretty significant by the time I got my reader job. And so, you know, when when my hobby became my my job, I had some background. Yeah. And so just curious that have you seen, uh, you know, a strong evolution in that, uh, you know, original form of storytelling over the years? Well, certainly, you know, first of all, nothing's novel. I don't, you know, even if you people think Tarantino's an original and all you have to do is look at Sam Peckinpah and, and look at others before him. So e everything has its its forerunner. You know, the people that were original were Chaplin. And, yeah. And, and Sturgis and Willem Wyler. And I mean, stuff that we now, you know, Orson Welles. I mean, we, so much of what we do now, we stole from Citizen Kane. Homaged. I shouldn't say steal. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I've, it's always great to see original storytellers, but it's also nice to know where it comes from and to know, okay, I see where that is. That's a, that's a Kubrick reference. That's clearly taken that, that, that person watched The Shining and this is, has that kind of a feel or, um, I think it, it makes for, 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 for me, the experience double because I, I'm experiencing it as yeah. both an audience, but then I have a slight, you know, uh, historical uh, bent as well. It, right. Cause you know, you're watching yeah. it, you're like, Oh no, I see that reference. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. You know how they tie yes. that in. But then, but at the same time, someone like Tarantino has, do you think he's like made it his own? Like he definitely has a definitive style that's obviously borrowed from others, but, but definitely, you know, he has a distinctive style to him. Do you think or no? Oh, no question. No question. I mean, I, I think his is more derivative than, say, uh, yeah. Wes Anderson, who I think is, I mean, and he has he sure. certainly borrowed from people, too. But I find uh, I'm not mm -hmm. a Tarantino fan, so I find yeah. his stuff very derivative and and mm -hmm. a, a little too self-indulgent. But I, I, I'm a huge, uh, if you're going to talk of, a, of the last 50 years, yeah. I'm a huge, I would say Kubrick and Coppola. Yeah. And those are my yeah, heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I'm I'm very aligned with you. And then, so let's let's go back. So you were president of Goober's Peters Television at some point in the '80s, right? So you served as president. What kind of projects came in? What did you do with them? Obviously, you, you got a script and you made it Rain Man. You you pushed it towards uh, film, but you know, in terms of yeah, that was the right. feature. So on the on the feature side, I worked on uh, I think I worked on three or four features. Two got made, which is yeah, a good track record. 
Uh, but then I was develop I was developing television movies and television series. So I put a series on and three TV movies. And so about a year later, right? A year later after Rain Man, essentially, you know, in 89, you started your own production company, Once Upon a Time Films. Correct. So what was the impetus for that? What made you go, this is the time? I There was a strike in the business. The Guru Peters came to me and said, I, I think it was either a writer's strike or an actor's strike. And it was going on a couple of months. And they came to me and said they were going to sort of suspend and extend my contract in order words like, you know, not pay me for a while because no one knew when the strike was going to end. I sort of said, you know what? I think I'm done. I think I want to try this on my own. The television movie business, which is was the business I was selling for them, was the last bastion of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship left in Hollywood. It was the one place where you could own a library of films, own, a neg own your negatives and compete against the studios. You couldn't in the series business. You couldn't in the feature business. Those those would require bigger pockets. But in the TV movie business, it was primarily small independents. And they were all older than me. They were all the generation ahead of me. I would have, when I went into it, I was the youngest person in that business. I borrowed some money from my grandfather, took a loan against the house I owned, and I started uh, Once Upon a Time Films as, as sort of a, a wink and a nod to Sergio Leone, who was a big, big influence mm. on me. And uh, Once Upon a Time in America and Once Upon a Time in the West. And so that's how I started Once Upon a Time Films. And I raised the money in 88 and we opened our doors in 89. Uh, I got my first movie ordered. I think I had enough money to last wow. 14 months. And I got my first movie ordered in about six. Uh, and that was a movie with Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson that we shot in Austin, Texas called Pair of Aces. From that point on, I we made movies every year until I decided I wanted to become a writer-director. So for about, started in 89, and I closed up shop probably about 25 years. Wow. So during that time, was there ever a moment where you were like, okay, I think I, I, I think I have a handle on this. And I'm starting to really like get into a groove here with making these films. Yeah, I would say probably about five or six years into it. I always felt like I was the kid and that everybody kind of was patronizing to me that in the in the sort of fraternity of of movie of the week producers and even in the fraternity of the people buying them. But then my generation was starting to move up. And so I went from being, you know, 30 to 35. And so now I, I felt like that my generation was was sort of now becoming the generation that was going to do it. And so as I made enough of them. And I realized that I wasn't going to lose my house and I wasn't going to go bankrupt and I wasn't and, it, and I understood the, the risk and I now knew how to do it. And I had enough experience that people looked to me and weren't afraid to take a chance on me. It became much, much easier because there was a lot I didn't know. I didn't understand the whole tax credit world and how that would work. And so it wasn't until I did my first movie in Canada that I understood that. And I didn't understand dealing with guilds and unions. And the first time I got shut down. I sort of learned that the hard way when hiring a labor lawyer to help get the picket line to be gone and all the things that you don't that aren't in the handbook when you when you start your own company. I learned by I learned right. by doing. And what would you say some of the best or most memorable projects that you that you like hold on to from that from that time? Well, the three best films I've ever did were my three bar mitzvah films for my three sons. So that I, that is an easy Aww. that's an easy question. I did three mockumentaries that actually all tie together. Uh, that's my, really sweet. On my three sons uh, that are absolutely my best work. But if we're going to talk about the Once Upon a Time library. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I won I won an Emmy for Broken Trail, Walter Hill directed with yep. Robert Duvall. That was a very painful experience. I it was that not went, a, didn't it win four Emmys? It did. No? It was, nominat it it was did. nominated. It was nominated for 17. We won four. Wow. Um, it was the most nominated miniseries since Roots. And... Uh, and it was, it was very, I, I earned that one. Uh, that Emmy was deserved because it was very, very difficult. Uh, Robert Duvall and Walter Hill did not get along from the beginning and it just got worse and worse. And so I ended up in the middle of that and it, the, the movie fell apart and came back together too many times to mention. And I was working with a network that had never done anything scripted, AMC. This was before they had done any of the shows they became, you know, Mad Men or Walking Dead or any of the shows they became famous for, they had never done anything scripted. They were a library network. And so we were their first scripted program. And so I was teaching them and they were panicking all the time. It was a real nightmare. So I, I obviously it's hard to not mention that one, but it's certainly not what I remember the fondest. I mean, the movies that that I, I really love, I'd have made a very personal film with Donald Sutherland and Matthew Fox and Brad Whitford um, and Mary McDonald called Behind the Mask, which won the DGC award. And won a bunch of other awards, which I'm very proud of. Uh, the I did a movie with Sigourney Weaver again, uh, 
I went back Prayers to her Bobby. and we did a movie called yeah. Prayers for Bobby, which won a lot of awards and I'm extremely proud of. I during at that for about the first five years after Prayers for Bobby era, I would get letters from young gay men who would ask for a DVD of it. Um, they would find me somehow and and uh, and ask me if I could send them a DVD because they had not told their families they were gay and they were going to screen the movie and then wow. come out to their families after watching the movie. So I feel like you know that movie made uh, made a difference. I'm incredibly proud of this four-hour miniseries um, I did on the capture of the Green River Killer that I did with Sheriff David Reichert from uh, from up in Washington State, who spent 25 years of his life chasing the Green River Killer. And we told a serial killer movie from the point of view of the victims. It It's still the highest rated miniseries in the history of Lifetime. And people stop me all the time. And Sheriff Reichert became a congressman and we screened it for wow. uh, the United States Congress. And it was a pretty amazing night. And then I did a movie to, from a Peter Moss book called The Terrible Hours about the only submarine rescue in history, which was done in 1938. And it was off the coast of New Hampshire. And they rescued guys at the bottom of the Atlantic who had been trapped. And it's the only time we've ever rescued submariners in the water. And George Bush, the second George W. Bush was president. Yeah. And as you know, his father was in the Navy and had been a, a war hero. And so somehow they found out we were doing this World War II submarine story. And so George Bush invited us to the White House and we screened oh my God. this uh, submerged movie for him. And and we were able to contact four of the last living survivors of the submarine that had been rescued. And they all came with their families. And uh, I still get chills. And I was happy to be sitting next to wow. one of the survivors and his daughter. And it was 1939. We, we, I think we made the movie 10 years ago. So you know, he hadn't seen that or ex re-experienced it. And next then he was experiencing you. it with his kids and his grandkids. And I sat, yeah, right next to me. And I was sitting behind the president and, and Mrs. Bush, and they both were sobbing. And uh, that was a pretty extraordinary night. This is pre-9-11, so it's a very different White House than, than obviously what it was afterwards. It, that was a pretty extraordinary night to watch that movie. There's a scene at the beginning where we set up all the characters. It's with Sam Neill and Shay Wiggum. And this is a true story. One of the guys that worked in the engine room switched with a guy that worked in the radio room, which is so the guy that was at the back of the sub switched with the guy in the front of the sub. And they'd flipped a coin and said, you know, you go here, you go there. And they switched. They The guy who ha was supposed oh to be at the back God. of the sub was at the front of the sub. And the guy at the back oh. of the sub died. And the guy at the front of the sub lived. And that's the guy that was sitting next to me was the one who the one who and what they the way they survived is when they hit the bottom, the captain was smart enough to seal off the back of the. So half the sub was still had air and half the sub was underwater. And uh, oh and the half that was in the God. had a, about a day and a half of air to live. The Sam Neill had come up with this sort of this crazy dive bell idea. And they they had given up um, on rescue. And they said, well, you can go out and try your dive bell because wow. those guys are dead. And he went out there and he saved every single person on that sub. So that was a pretty extraordinary that that night at the White House. I you know will go down for me is pretty extraordinary. That's incredible. And so, and what year was this? What year was that movie? Around. That's okay. It's around. I'm just trying to. So that I assume. I mean, this was still. We're still in the Once Upon a Time films era, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it has I to be because you know 2000 it has to be around 9/11. Uh, before then, anyway. It was right. In, yeah. So that was yeah. 2001. I think the movie was like 99, I want to say. I okay. was shooting. I think it was 99. So if it was 39, so it was really like 60 years after it happened. I was shooting. This is a true story. I was shooting a movie in Auckland, New Zealand called Atomic Twister. And then I was shooting the submarine movie simultaneously. They were going at the same time in Malta because that's where the best underwater tank is. And so I had a movie shooting in Malta and a movie shooting in Auckland. And I wanted to go from the Malta set to the Auckland set. And I called my travel agent and said, I want to go from Malta to Auckland. So they said, wow, okay, do you want to go <laughs> east or west? I said, I said, which is shorter? They said, it's the same. Wow. Oh, <laughs> That's how far away I was. Oh. I was going to go all the way around the globe, no matter oh, which my way God. I went. How often can you say that? That's crazy. Yeah. Obviously, with the different movies that you've done, and you've done so many, are there anything? Is there anything that sticks out as to like why you why you want to do that one? Is it something about the heart? Is it something because obviously there's some that have been based on true stories. I know you're. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but your upcoming one 
girl who fell from the sky is also a compelling story that, you know, based on something that happened. I'm not a believer in making true stories because they happened. I think that's an egregious error from a storytelling standpoint. I want to care. And I want I want to make something that one I'm gonna ha- I know I'm gonna to have to live with it for years um, from the time I find it to the time I deliver it to a network I'm lucky if it's two years sometimes it's four you know sometimes it's ten I have to care about it in some way even if it's a thriller or a romantic comedy even if it's just something that is going to be entertaining I have to care and I have to be rooting for the the lead somehow I have to be emotionally invested in whatever the journey is that the lead character is going on whether it's survival or it's falling in love or it's rectifying a wrong. I want to be there with that. And I I think movies should make you feel something, whether it's anger or frustration or happiness or laughter or tears. I think movies need to do that. And that's why we want them. And that's why I think we'll, we'll probably always experience them in a big yeah. room together with other people when we get to go back to do that. So that's for me, that was always the thing I looked for. And then there was all, sometimes there was just personal things. Like I was obsessed with Sergio Leone and I wanted to be, I chased Westerns because I was a big Western fan and I wanted to be the first American TV movie producer to ever work on his sets in Almeria, Spain. And I shot two movies in uh, Spain on those Sergio Leone sets with Sergio Leone's crew, one for TNT and one for CBS. And that was just a, that was basically, I, I, I'm somehow I'm going to figure out a way to do this. I'm going to somehow figure out a Western, get somebody to pay for it and then go to Spain and shoot and did. Well, so, I mean, let's fast forward a bit now. So we have in 2014, really, is that, that, that's really when you started directing with like the Grim Sleeper followed by Perfect Sisters. Is that when, you know, directing sort of films again, came back in your life? Yes. Never yeah, again. Well, I, okay. It was never again. It was, I had wanted to, uh, at about 2010, 2011, I had, I'd won all these awards. I'd made a, a, well over 50 movies. I, I really wanted to direct. I'd watched a lot of directors that I felt didn't do as good a job as I would When you done. were at AFI, so, did, you, did you direct at all? Uh, well, they, <laughs> they did let... Oh. Uh, that's such a sore subject. They let the non-directing fellows direct at the very end of the year if there was any money left over. I was one of three people that took advantage of that. And I wrote a script based on a Kurt Vonnegut short story. And I directed a movie. And I stupidly produced it as well. I kind of divided my time. I did a terrible job. And the movie's, it's a short, it's like 15 minutes long. It's unwatched. And so for a long time, I thought, well, I just, I'm not a director. And I would go back to that AFI experience. And then, of course, I was with enough therapy. I was able to realize I could forgive myself for doing a crappy job. Have you ever revisited the script? No. Uh, uh, like the actual script, not the no, film. Because the film would I don't be know different. Where like, have you ever revisited the script? I don't even know where script? that script would be. Burned somewhere. <laughs> I'm still in touch with one of the actors, though. <laughs> it's a great short story. And I, I, it's sort of a Black Mirror kind of did it. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I had I did. Funny that no one's ever asked me that. But so I did have a directing experience in my background. But many, 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 many years I, later, I felt like it came from somewhere. <laughs> many years later, I uh, I realized that that was not the one that I should use as the litmus test on whether or not I could direct. So and so why the, the first Grim thing, Sleeper, yeah, no, not, it wasn't Grim Sleeper. Perfect oh, Sisters was the first. Um, oh, Perfect Sisters so was the first movie. Came out. What happened yeah. was I, uh, yeah. I had attached myself to three scripts that I had sold. And I said to the networks, when this goes into production, I'm the director. And they'd all approved me. And then, of course, because I was making three movies a year, what happened was each of those movies would get greenlit and I would be in production or post-production or pre-production on something else. And they would say, well, if you go off to direct this movie in, say, Vancouver or Toronto, and there's a problem on one of your other movies, normally you would get on a plane and go fix it. But if you're directing, you can't. So I, I got unapproved three times in a row. And by the third time, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so I realized it was time to make a decision. And that's when I I sold my development, held onto my library, and literally stepped off the carousel of being a television movie supplier. Now, at the Tulsa, let's be honest, when I started the TV movie business, it started that was CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox. And then by the time I, I was at my heyday, you know, there was so many places to make TV movies. And then by the time I gave up my company, one, by the time I shuttered Once Upon a Time, there was just Lifetime and Hallmark. So it wasn't even a fun business to be in anymore because there weren't, there was nobody that was going to make a Western. I, I never would have been able to go to Almeria under this current, you know, situation. So that kind of hastened my decision to give up my company and start as a writer director. And that was the first movie was Perfect Sisters because I owned that script. It was a true story. I was fascinated by yeah, it. It was very, very Hitchcockian and very intense. And we were going to do it for a lifetime. And it's the only time in my career 
where on the second set of notes from the network, which kept lightening and softening up the story, I, I said, you know what? I, I know this is shooting myself in the foot, but I'm going to ask for the script back because this doesn't, this movie doesn't make sense if you take all the teeth out of it. I mean, it's, it needs to be a very dark tale and you keep, you keep making it lighter and lighter and that doesn't make any sense. And so I don't want to make it here. And so it went on my shelf and it had been on my shelf for about three years when I closed my company. And this is a script I owned and really liked. And I went back to the writers and said, do me a favor. Would you do a pass if this is going to be a feature? And so they, as a favor, went through it and did it, took out the act breaks and made it, you know, made it closer to the original dark story, put the language back in and the sex and all of that. And then it was a script that I could make. And I had a lot of favors owed me in Canada. I'm Canadian and, and I could qualify for the Canadian tax credits. And so that became what was supposed to be a little tiny student film of mine ended up being a really important film because I got an Academy Award winning cast. It's become, a, I, I still think it's one of the most successful wow. teen thrillers in Netflix history. It's still in the algorithm. If you type there in you Teen Prime, uh, it still pops up. And it's been every time it comes up for renewal where I could take oh. it out and sell it to someone else, Netflix says, nope, we want to. So they've renewed it three times. So, uh, and, and there's I'm been, there's fan fiction all. written about it. There's fan but art. There's Instagram pages. I mean, basically my uh, Hitchcock used to say uh, that when he got bored, he would come up with an idea that would paint himself into the corner and then he'd have to find a way out. And he, he did Lifeboat because he said, could he make a scary thriller with people stuck in a lifeboat where you could see from all sides? And basically I, having done so much true crime over my career, I wanted to see if I could keep the audience, if not sympathetic, empathetic to a couple of young women who were put in a situation where they only understood killing their mother as the only way out. And I wanted to see if after that, I could keep the audience sympathetic. My favorite thing is to is when I watched it with an audience, because it was released theatrically, you'd hear people leave the audience, leave the theater, and they would argue back and forth. And some thought, you know, the courts were too light on them, and some thought they weren't tough enough. So it was interesting that I succeeded in getting people to talk about their case. And, uh, and a lot of people wrote, a lot of people wrote about it because it's, they do yeah. in some ways some get ways. away with murder. So subsequent to that, obviously you've been doing some yeah. directing for, for now a while. So how has that transition overall? What have been some of the projects that you've enjoyed directing since? Is this something that you, I mean, in some of them you've been directing and producing as well, like Perfect Sisters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that, I was going to ask I, after I your AFI experience. I, I, I don't mind. I should have known better. Uh, it seemed like the only way to get it made. And it was a it was a really stupid. I should have learned my own lessons. So now if I produce it, it means it just means that I developed the project and found the financing. But I actually won't produce it. I'll, I'll bring a producer on. I've had great. Uh, here's the thing. It's heroin. Directing is the greatest high. And I'm I'm a full on junkie. So if you ask me what projects have I enjoyed directing, all of them and for different reasons, clearly the most fun I've ever had. It's literally like someone says to you here, this is a $450,000 Ferrari. We're going to let you drive this for eight days. Yeah. Bring it back the way you found it. That's what directing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is like. It's a big, muscular, very expensive, incredible standing sets, incredible cast, incredible crew. And even though you're the director, you're like the substitute teacher. They all know each other and you don't know anyone. And so you have to quickly get you know the rhythm and the language and... And then you have to be super prepared. And that's where my... Yeah, my, I was going to ask, what's that preparation like? So they give you two weeks and they do, a smart, they do a smart thing. They give you the checkerboard, their director and their cinematographer. So, I mean, their first AD and their cinematographer. So you get your first AD that you're going to be shooting with and your cinematographer that you're going to be shooting with. And then you have two weeks to prep. Well, no, you have a week to prep. So while the other show, while they're shooting the episode before you, you're prepping your show. And then... The same thing will happen in reverse when you get to go shoot your show. Then those people that were the, the first AD and the cinematographer from that one before you now will go into prep to the following. And so so I think I had eight days of prep and eight days of shooting. You really have to do your homework because you're moving like that. It's going incredibly fast. And you, you obviously you want to leave a mark. But on the other hand, you want to make sure you have enough coverage so that the because you don't it's not really going to be your cut. It's going to be the the showrunner's cut. So you want to make sure that they get it. They have everything they need in case they want to change your cut. But it's, a you know, to do a sci-fi show on ABC with a huge budget and a great cast is literally a dream come true. The movie that changed my life was Citizen Kane. I saw it in a movie theater first and 
I, I said that was the moment when I said I have to do this. And Citizen Kane was shot on the same stages as I shot Agents of Shield. Wow, believe me, I that's know. amazing. That was that didn't go. Yeah, I didn't miss that uh, in terms of for me personally the incredible honor of getting to shoot a television show on the same stages where Orson shot uh, Xanadu and other sets from Citizen Kane. So I'd be remiss not to ask this just because A, I'm interested and B, I'm sure there's going to be actors going to be listening to this. If you only have a couple weeks, right, or at least one week of preparation, really, how is casting something like that? I mean, obviously, there there is that relationship where a lot of that, those roles are obviously already cast, the series regulars, but the guest stars and the co-stars, how is that and trying to fit into the greater picture of what the show is, while also still, that's a huge part of... Well, I think I, I think it's, it's probably different on every show, and I can only speak to the shows I've produced, and then this. <laughs> I did two, this is my second episode is going to air, well, actually will have aired on June 24th. June 24th, yeah. And, yeah. On Hulu, and it'll be available uh, on Hulu. It'll, it'll be available on Hulu, yeah. It aired on ABC, and then it'll uh, live on Hulu, and then also on Netflix, eventually, I think a year later. Wow. And But I did one in season five. I did uh, 504, which is the fourth episode of season five, and then I did uh, 705, fifth episode of season seven. The first time I kind of went in gung ho on casting. And so when they would send me the tapes of the guest star roles, I would l- write these long memos. Oh, like this person, this why this, I would say this. And I'm not obviously as the executive producer and owner of so many movies, I had the final say on all the casting in all my movies when I was a TV movie producer. And I, w- I wrote these long dissertations about what I liked, what I like. And I would say, and I rank them this first, uh, these would be my top three. And then these would be the people I wouldn't, you know, recommend. It was after my first memo, I heard nothing. And then all of a sudden a memo came out saying they hired someone and they were not, not none ah. of my first three. So then I realized, so then I realized, ah, okay, <laughs> this isn't my decision because this per these people may reappear sometime. Uh, they might actually ha- have, you know, a, a guest starring role that's going to last multiple episodes. So it's not just my decision. It's a decision that yeah. the showrunners really need to make. And uh, so I learned that the, the hard way. The second time around, I think they trusted me more because I obviously was asked back. They liked the episode I did. So I had a little more say, but it's really a showrunner's world. And the writer creators of, and they were incredibly gracious to me, Jed and, and Marissa of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., one Joss Whedon's brother, Jed Whedon, and his wife, they were incredibly supportive of me and and gracious, but it is their world. You know, it's their, the, the show in the end, I'm going to walk away. They're going to continue. So the cut and the and the casting is more them. I have input, but it's more them than me as the guest director. Is there a particular show that you'd that you, another show that you'd love to direct an episode for? Well, I am a big fan of the, the this is part of the Marvel Universe and I'm a big fan of the DC Universe shows. I really like The Flash and a friend of mine does a show called Stargirl, which I really yeah. like. So I would love to to uh, these these superhero shows are super fun to direct. Super fun to direct, and obviously, you know, if I, you know, if I got a chance to do a, a Netflix show or a you know Hulu show or an Amazon show, that'd be great. But I, I'm I'm happy developing movies and trying to get them made as a director and writing scripts and trying to sell them. And if I am lucky enough to get some episodic, that's great. The Agents of Shield thing was my best friend's show, and so he was able to take a chance on me. And if I get that to do that again, that would be great. And if I don't, I'm thrilled that I have had the chance. Yeah, I, I have a feeling it's just the beginning of that, that portion of just of TV directing. Well, thank you. So your upcoming projects that you have, you know, I think a lot of people are really curious about post COVID world or not post, but just COVID world where how are we going to get back on set? So, you know, what do you have, you know, any, any sort of direction, any thoughts on um, the next couple of projects? What's that going to be like? Uh, you know, if I had a crystal ball, I, I would tell you, I think yeah. every one of us is still is still living. I, I have a movie greenlit may happen, may not happen. It's supposed to shoot in Canada. We were supposed to be in prep in July. So that's not going to happen. Now we're hoping to be in prep in August. But I don't nobody knows. You know, the California protocols are prohibitively expensive for a television movie. So you, you're either going to have to be a very well-funded feature or very well-funded series, because I, I can't imagine those protocols being something that we could do in the television movie business. So the hope is if if Vancouver, Toronto, Winnipeg, Halifax open, that their protocols will be a little more sensitive to 
the TV movie world, and then hopefully I'll be able to go up and, and shoot my movie. I'm supposed to do the movie is is by playwright John Peelmeyer, who also wrote my Long Island serial killer movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the Capture of the Green River Killer movie, and it's called it's about the Long Island serial okay. killer. It's again told from the point of view of the victims, not mm. from the police. And it's a it's an extraordinary script. You kind of don't know who the good guys or the bad guys are all the time. And it's a kind of an, a, it's for Sony and Lifetime. And it's sort of a, it's a, I think a bit of a stretch for what Lifetime normally does in the true crime arena. And it's, he's a enormously gifted screenwriter. He's run, written more of my movies yeah. than anyone else. I think we've done seven movies wow. together. He wrote, and he's the, a brilliant playwright, a brilliant playwright. He has, a, uh, he, he did, he did the a- adaptation of the exorcist, which is going to go to Broadway. If Broadway ever comes back. He also wrote the submarine movie that we screened at the White House. He and oh. I, we've done we've done more projects together than any other single writer that I've worked with. And he's just and he's also a very dear friend. And so my hope is we'll get to go do that one either in one of the it, it, since it's Long Island, it needs to have water. So if I had to guess, it'll be Hamilton or Toronto or maybe Halifax or or Vancouver. And that's supposed to go as soon as people are ready to shoot up there. I think, you know, I've read that they're getting ready to open, but I don't know that they'll be open. I think they're going to open to like reality shows and, and people who could need some very small crews and, and no cast or small amounts of cast. But hopefully eventually, as I think as people start to take some chances, we'll see what happens. And it, as long as as the first projects that go into production don't have people testing positive, I think then you'll start to see more and more. And, I, and obviously... There'll be, I mean, I think some of the protocols the DGA has come up with, with the three zones and breaking people at different times for lunch and getting rid of craft service and having catering be prepackaged meals and all those things, masks on set and and, set and social distancing and all that stuff, I think is all very important. Yeah. And I think we'll, but then there's certain things in the California protocols that just make it prohibitive. And so I'm hoping that that we'll start to see uh, the Canadian protocols be more realistic and then and hopefully they'll you know everyone will get tested and we'll take people's temperatures when they come to set and hopefully we'll get through it. I'm ready to go to work. I'm prepared to to you Can know, you to take do that any chance. work now? I mean is there any prep that you could be doing now? I mean what's your day to day like as of like now? Well we're working on we're we're do, we're, we're we're working on the script with the network and the studio kind of waiting. So we had one more draft so we'll do that and we're also doing some of the insurance and legal work ahead of time, the annotation of the script. And then I have a feature that's ready to go behind that, that would shoot in Colombia in the Amazon. And that sounds that's very financed, interesting. But we don't, but we don't have, we don't want to make an offer to an actor yet because Colombia is right. closed. And so we don't want to, we don't really want to lock in an actress until we know we can shoot. So and I feel like that's a different, that'll be a different type of set probably, anyway. That, that'll be more of a, yeah. Well, it's the perfect, it's the perfect COVID movie because right. it's one actress for about 80% yeah. of the movie and she's on yep. screen by herself. So that's why we were able to get the money for it. And, but I'm, I won't shoot it anywhere, but actually in Colombia in the Amazon, because it takes place in the Amazon. And so I got to wait for Colombia to open. And right now, South America is, hard. Is, yeah. is having a very tough time. Yeah. But it's, it's an, I mean, I, this is one of those, you know, you have the movies that you make for entertainment and to pay the bills. And then you have the movies that, that you will just only make the right way and that you know are going to matter and you know are going to be part of your legacy. And this is one of those for me. This was the most extraordinary true story I've ever read. And I was, I chased it for three years. Another producer had it. And it's the first time I ever wrote a screenplay that I was going to direct. So it's the first original screenplay I ever wrote from an adaptation. And so I, this is, you know, I'm hoping going to be the movie that will um, get people to take up and take notice of me as a director. I'm excited. Yeah, I know. It's a very interesting story. I mean, I, I couldn't yeah. believe it when I was looking at it, what she went through. Well, I'm excited. Yeah, it's the true story of Julianne Kepke. Yeah, she's a German woman from, she was in high school in uh, 1972 and in uh, Lima, Peru. And her parents were both noted zoologists and she had been raised in the Amazon until she was about 12. And then she went to school in Lima, Peru. And then when the movie opened, she's graduating high school and her parents are getting ready to celebrate Christmas. And her dad goes ahead and mom and her take a flight on New Year's Christmas Eve. And it's hit by lightning twice in midair and disintegrates. And she's in the window seat upside down and finds herself, as she said, I didn't leave the plane. The plane left me. And it's her chair pinwheels from 20,000 feet, hits the canopy of the Amazon. And she wakes up the next morning in the Amazon and alone. And for 11 days, she survived on the lessons she learned and, you know, a lot of the miracles that took Incredible. place. And uh, and she 
made it. I, I've gone, I've flown to, she lives in Munich. I've flown to Munich. I've spent two weeks with her. She's a pretty extraordinary woman, and she's trying to save the Amazon. She spends half her year in Munich and half her year at her foundation in the Amazon. And so we're, there was no way I was going to shoot this and, and try else. and fake the Amazon. Yeah. No, that's, and, yeah. and it'll, it'll be amazing. Okay. So the last couple of yeah. things I want to talk about before we're done. I'm sorry that this is taking a little longer than I anticipated. So you are working on a novel, which is very exciting. Can you talk about that a little? Yes. <laughs> I decided I'd always wanted to. I had written a memoir that I kind of put on the shelf, but to sort of get me into a writing mode. When I left Once Upon a Time and decided I wanted to try writing, I, I thought, well, whose story is better to tell than my own? And that got me in a writing mode. And then I started writing screenplays. And I always have had this idea for a novel. And when the pandemic happened, I thought, you know what? This is the time. Uh, I'm going to become very regimented. I'm going to get up in the morning and write. When I first graduated Brandeis, I came out to LA and I joined the Alumni Association out here. And they weren't doing much. And someone said, we should do like a lecture series. And I said, well, I ran lectures at Brandeis. So they said, good, you get to do it. <laughs> and we got some pretty amazing people to come to come and speak. And we got big crowds. Uh, and I remember one of them was Neil Simon. And I remember somebody asking Neil Simon, what's your schedule for writing? And he said, I get up every day at nine. I go to my office. I write till two. Whether it's good, bad, indifferent, I write. And I always end in the middle of a sentence so that when I come back the next day, I don't have to start at the beginning of a scene or the beginning of, a, of an act. And I remembered that. And I thought, okay, that's going to be me. I'm going to write every day and you know, in the morning and till I, you know, until the afternoon, and I'm going to stop in the middle of the sentence. And uh, that's what I've been doing. And I'm on chapter 23. It's a mystery thriller set in the wow. world of movie buffs. You know, I don't know that anyone will read it or anyone will publish it, but I'm having the best time. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah, I, I've had the opposite thing, I think, happen. I, I started writing a book, I think, a few months ago. And then when COVID happened, I don't know what ha changed for me. But I guess because all your routines change, all of a sudden I was like, it was hard for me to fit into my routine to write. It's very odd. But now this is kind of inspiring me to like keep going. I finished a first draft. It's a different type of book. Though. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah. No, it's a different type of book, though. It's on the business side of acting, like everything I wish I knew when I left school, which is very apropos. Mm -hmm. So lastly, what I want to talk about is obviously your charitable foundation. I mean, what made you so, so we'll talk a little bit about it, the Hollywood Indies Little League, and it brings Little League baseball back to at risk kids in South Central LA. So why? And that was, I'm trying to remember, was that 94? that was created? Correct. Very good. 94. Yeah. We just celebrated our 25th Congratulations. anniversary. Thank you. My first kid was four years old and he was a year away from T-ball. And I was sitting in my office. I was in Arnold Schwarzenegger's building at the time. Casual That's my name office drop. Casual. And I remember <laughs> I was in Well, yeah, he directed a, he directed right a movie for, for me sure. called Absolutely. Christmas in Connecticut. I was reading the LA Times with my you know morning hot tea. And I read this little piece that said the California, I mean, the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors had cut the Parks and Rec budget. And the first thing to go was going to be Little League at Parks in, 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 in the, the difficult, more difficult part of town. I thought, well, that's ridiculous. That <laughs> can't be. So I picked up the phone and called Parks and Rec. And the lovely man got on the phone and said, I said, is this true? And he goes, yes, he's been going on for a while now. The parks where famous baseball players, uh, Daryl Strawberry and Eric Davis and uh, uh, Eddie Murray and other famous baseball players in the Hall of Fame played are now basically broken bottles and 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 rubble because we don't have the money. And I said, "Why baseball?" And he said, "Because it's like seven times more expensive than you know for basketball. You need a, a hoop and a basket and a ball." And he said, "For baseball, there's a lot of equipment and umpires and all." So he says, "That's always the first thing that's going to go." And I said, "Well, are you getting rid of it in Beverly Hills and Bel Air and Westwood and Pacific Palisades?" And he said, "No, because those parents will fund it." Ah. And I sort of set my hair on fire. I, I said that didn't seem right. And I thought of my kids, like not being able to play baseball. And uh, baseball's always been the thing for me. My family had Dodger seats since I was born. And so so I wrote a letter to like 10 TV movie producers and said, look, we all shoot out of town. This is a chance to give back to Los Angeles in kind of a meaningful way. We'll each sponsor a team. So, you know, you'll get the Braves and I'll get the athletics. I got eight checks and... Thus, in 1994, was born the Holiday Inn Little League, and we were at a small park that had one baseball diamond. And then about six years later, we had grown so much that we moved to a new park that had four baseball diamonds, and we're now the largest program in the county. We're partnered with the Dodgers RBI program. Uh, we've sent kids to college where we do a winter program, and it's we have now have softball for 
for young women so they can also have a chance at a scholarship for college. And I, you know, it's the, by far the thing I'm the most proud of and done the, you know, obviously it's keeping kids safe during the summer and spring. And, you know, th- those families have become my family. And I spent a lot of time down at the park and I, I absolutely love it. It's a, it's definitely the best thing I've done in my life and helped other people. You know, and it's beautiful because we think about, you know, what we create, right? What we create in this lifetime, what we create in the world. And you've created so much, you know, you've been a part of so many different creations that will stand, but creating something like that, which is, you know, just has tremendous direct impact on all these children and all these families. That's, it's, it's amazing. So thank you. yeah, happy 25th anniversary. It's also, you know, thank you. Yeah, we had a great, we've had, we've had really great people come out and, and throw out the first pitch for opening day. We had Maria Shriver and Mike Piazza and Tommy Lasorda and Carl, Carl Lewis. And we took a vote. We had like five people we, we were able to get and we took a vote and all the families voted on last year on uh, seeing if we could get Tony Braxton. So Tony Braxton threw oh. out the first pitch last year. And that was our, that was our anniversary year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Well, yes, you can find yes. us. Uh, Online at hollywoodindiesleague.org. Wonderful. And anything else that you want to, in terms, I mean, we've talked about stuff, uh, but anywhere like people can find your work specifically or. Standanddeliver.com, S-T-A-N-A-N-D, Deliver. That's a great name. We didn't even Um, get into that, unfortunately, uh, but it's a great name. Thank you. So Stand and Deliver is uh, clips of my work. It has all of my, I used to be a contributor to the Huffington Post before they got rid of unpaid contributors. Uh, So all of my blog posts about life and movies are on there and clips of my movies and links to where you can watch my movies. And so, yeah, it's all on. I did, uh, there's a nice trailer. I did, I produced 10 episodes of the Lizzie Borden yes. series in Halifax. And that was amazing. And yeah. uh, with Christina Ricci and, and Jonathan Banks. And that's on there. And I was pretty proud of that. It looks pretty amazing. It, Christina and Jonathan. It's, it's difficult having just like, an, you know, a simple conversation with you because of all the different amazing stuff. <laughs> You know, you can't even get to everything. I couldn't, you know, we didn't even get to that project. It's hard. You make it hard. You make it difficult. Uh, I'm happy to come yes. back, Michelle. Michelle, I'll do part oh, two. You get, know what? Have me that, back. I'm happy to come back anytime you, you so want. Thank you so much. It might have to happen because I'm just thinking to myself, man, there's just so much in a good way. But thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been absolutely incredible. I really do appreciate it. And you're wonderful. There's so much to learn from you. Uh, a big shout out to... I just want to say a big, big shout out. You, we learned from your from your uh, panel that uh, the importance of the we American did. Studies Department. We so did. big shout out to, I, I, there's no question that that changed my life. And also, by the way, I'm going to do another shout out. Uh, my friend Jason Ensler uh, wrote and directed a movie on Brandeis' 50th anniversary called Searching mm, for Alice and yes. Fortunic about all of the amazing people that are in show business from Brandeis. And it's available uh, on the Brandeis website yes. somewhere. Or you can just type into Google searching for Alison Porchnick. And it's a pretty, it's a very, very, very clever movie with a really great payoff. And you know what I'll do? I think that I'm able to, once I, you know, once I publish this, I'll be able to put like podcast notes and I'll put that website as well. Yeah. I think you'll I'll be pretty amazed. You'll look at it and go, as, as people do, wow, all those people went to Brandeis. <laughs> I know. I, I'm consistently surprised. Yeah. In a good way. I just feel like just it's an it's amazing how many people came in and then made such a you know indelible mark on the entertainment world. Well, just in my class, my roommate was Mitch Album, who's I think has one of the yes. biggest selling books of all time. And then yes. I, I funded a uh, at programming board. I funded a friend of mine, David Crane, and his writing partner, Marta. Oh, Coff- oh my god! They wrote. They wrote we didn't a play. even get to this, Stan. I might have they to wrote just a play. this. They wrote a play at Brandeis called Roommates. Friends? <laughs> roommates. No, it was called roommates. roommates or something. And it was basically six friends. And That's so funny. Uh, and so if you just look at Marta, David, me, and I'm mean, not even put myself Mitch. in that. Just Marta, no, David, you and Mitch. It's pretty what amazing. A class. You know, it's funny because I used to give tours for a period of time at Brandeis, like student tours to, to incoming people. And I remember part of the story that one of the stories they taught us or I think, I don't know if they taught us, but it was a story that circulated around was that Marta Kaufman and David Crane created friends um, at the castle, like at, um, at what's it called? At the um, Lincoln. Chumleys? Yes, at Chumleys, at Chums. Yeah. And uh, that was how they created 
And then and that's how they created Friends was in that place. And that was sent like almost based on Chums was based on Central Perk was a rumor. And later I found it out that that wasn't true. It was very sad to hear. That's yeah, not true. it's just not true. Just that wasn't <laughs> that was just completely wrong. So but they did. I will tell you, I will tell you that the student programming board, which was then called Probo, Probo. Uh, did help finance, which did finance a play they did, which I can't rem- think, remember the name of, but it was about a group of friends. There you yeah. go. This is a true story. We went out when they were working on Dream On on HBO. We went out with a show that we pitched, which they just were a little green yet to have their own show. And we went out and pitched a show called Poker Night about eight friends that played poker once a week. And then we followed them during the week. And then they came together at the end and played poker. And it was eight friends. That was that oh close. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. And are you a fan of Grace and Frankie? Of course. I know. I, I you know, I follow Marta. I follow yeah. Marta and David and so proud of them. They are so funny in Allison Portia. You know, it's, I, I feel like, I, yeah, I have to rewatch it. But I was thinking with David Crane, I think I just saw a clip of him. And it was this behind the scenes thing of Friends where he's like trying to come up with a joke like in real time. He's like, that joke didn't work. Let's figure out a new joke that we can throw in there. He brings in Matthew Perry. He's like, let's let's brainstorm together. And just to see them on set, just going back and forth, mm-hmm. finding the funny line. And they're like, that's it. Go, go. You got it. It's amazing. It's amazing to see talent yep. just yep. get it done. Oh. They had it at Brandeis. It's good to know. It's good to know. Well, thank you again, Stan, for this. This yep. has been so lovely. And I really appreciate it. I'll let My you know pleasure. when this is out. Thank you so much. Great. Best of luck. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it, and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. I'm choosing a review to read on our next episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.